Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. For Jeff Rader, this is success. I tend to define it through impact. How much positive impact can I, can the company have in the world around us? From Business Insider, I'm Rich Filoni. Jeff Rader is the co-founder and co-CEO of the razor company Harry's. It's an online subscription service that sends high-end razors to customers at a low cost. It's the same approach that won eyeglasses company Warby Parker millions of customers. That's not a coincidence. Raider was a co-founder of that company, too. Now, Raider is moving Harry's business model beyond shaving to include all kinds of men's grooming products. The company raised $112 million earlier this year. Raider makes the kinds of products he wants to use in his own life. But before he became an entrepreneur, he was at Wharton Business School on a typical path to finance. So I worked at an investment fund before business school. I love the people there. Uh, it's a wonderful place. And they paid for me to go to school. And so when we had the idea for Warby Parker, it was like an idea that was exciting to go build while I was in school. It was a thing I was going to do in school and kind of a project. Yeah, almost like a hobby, not like a real... That's how it started. And yeah. then I think it evolved into a being the thing that defined my experience in school. And when we graduated, you know, I was always planning to go back to investing because I promised them I'd come back after school and I felt a lot of obligation to lots of people. I really liked the people. And so, you know, I stepped down full time at Warby Parker um, and two of my co-founders, there were four of us started together, two of my co-founders who were amazing, stepped up to run the entire company. And then I was back working in investing, still spending nights and weekends on Warby Parker and still loved it a lot. Um, so you were spending, also, you had a full time job. Which yeah. is probably like a, a big uh, demand anyways yep. if you're in finance. Yeah. How did you figure that out? Like, were it was you a even really sleeping? busy time. No, yeah. I, I, it was probably the time that I've been busiest professionally. And I think what was why it was such a crazy time is I was working really hard at my job and investing, also working on Warby Parker. And then on top of it, I was thinking about, well, what do I want to do next? And feeling like I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial next. And then my Harry's co-founder, Andy, called me with the idea for Harry's. And then I was doing all three. Um, You're doing that, all three all at once. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I think at some point, you know, we built out an amazing team at Warby Parker. We brought in incredible investors. And so at some point, I feel like the sort of day-to-day demands there became a little bit less intensive. And I could focus more time on my day job at the time and on Harry's. And then over time, obviously, transitioned out of my day job to, to do Harry's full-time, which, which has been an amazing experience. How long were you in that phase where you're doing 
all three ventures at once, yeah. including your full-time job. Yeah. So we had the idea for Harry's in late 2011, and I left uh, working in investing uh, towards the end of the summer in 2012. I actually remember the, the weekend that I left. I was in Cape Cod, and um, I was at a uh, like this amazing outdoor sort of bar restaurant with some friends, um, and I literally like passed out, like collapsed, um, just from exhaustion. And I was like, okay, I finally hit my breaking point. Like that is it. Um, and I need to dial it back. Yeah. And luckily I could go from a few jobs to, <laughs> to a few less. So wait, so when you got to this point of pure exhaustion, how did you know which one you wanted to dedicate yourself to? Well, at that time I, we were working on Harry's full time. Um, and so it was about sort of have, and I had already left investing. Mm-hmm. So it was about, um, really sort of re- taking a little bit of time, regrouping myself, and then rededicating myself to Harry's. And then when you and uh, Andy were deciding how to run this, how did you decide on a co-CEO model? And, and what does that even look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think having co-founders and co-CEOs in a company is great. Um, if you feel like you've got a great relationship with that other person and your skills complement each other well. Um, you know, when you're starting a company early on, you've got so many things you've got to do. I mean, there's all these different functional buckets, and then there's a hundred items under each of those that you have to think about. You know, just to ship product, you have to find a distribution partner, you have to negotiate the right rates, you have to figure out the right protocols and processes. And so there's just way too much for any one person to do. You've got to build a team that can help. And if you want to be excellent, a lot of those things early on, having amazing people who can, I think, drive different pieces of that is really valuable. And I think, you know, it was helpful for us to be able to kind of divide and conquer in that way, um, trust each other in an implicit way that we were going to execute well on our individual pieces, and then obviously align on the areas of intersection and sort of the general vision for the business. So how would the co-CEO model be different from, say, one of you being a CEO and one being the COO? I think, you know, for us, we always felt like we were equal partners in this business. That's how we structured the business economically. That's how we structured our sort of engagements with the team. It's us doing this together. And so we felt like creating unnecessary hierarchy would just complicate that dynamic. And it's always been that dynamic. You know, Andy and I kind of joke that we finish each other's sentences. We now, we've known each other for 15 years. We've spent so much time together. And that sometimes our emails just be Jeff and Andy at Harry's.com. <laughs> Jeff and Harry's or Andy and Harry's. You know, like your grandparents have an email, you know, whatever. Like a shared email, yeah. Yeah, and so, um, you know, we feel like, we, it is a partnership and that, you know, our titles just reflect that partnership. We're also not precious about titles. Like, I've never been like, you know, oh, I'm this, this title or that title. If you have equal footing, has there ever been moments where you've butt heads? I mean, I think there are times when we disagree, but I think we have a tremendous amount of mutual respect for each other. And so our disagreements are never personal. It's always just sort of objective, like what what is the right answer to this specific question? And then we usually use logic and, and reasoning to sort of solve it. And the other thing that we've done a lot is if we have really hard problems that we're not sure of, and you know, we talk a lot about the fact that there's not always necessarily a right answer. There's probably a, an answer that takes you in direction A or direction B, but either of those directions are, are viable or a 60% right answer and a 40% right answer. And so when we're struggling, and usually where there's a level of disagreement, it's on really complicated questions. And so what we then oftentimes do is just get amazing advisors around us and present those questions as a unified front together, say, listen, we're thinking about this. We're actually not sure. 
here are the benefits, here are the drawbacks. Can you just help us think through this? And I think oftentimes their input is really valuable into our decision-making process as well. So it sounds like the way that you guys have figured it out is a matter of like setting aside your egos and just letting someone choose I think that's right. I think we respected each other's perspectives and ability to sort of drive our parts of the business together. When it came to strategy, where are we taking the company? What do we want to build in the long term? I think that's where we spent more time together. And I think, you know, one of the things that we always talk about is that strategy is what you don't do as opposed to what you decide to do because we have all these opportunities. And so for us, it was about thinking about, okay, what are the things that we really want to do and the things that we're not sure about? And then getting input from our team and board and advisors and other people at the right points in time to help us where those answers may not be as clear. What do you mean by strategy is what you decide not to do? You know, so at Harry's, you know, we could go into new product lines. We could build out our own retail stores. We could expand geographically we could we've expanded into retail you know we can do lots of different things and we only have a finite set of of resources and we still have a pretty small team relative to our competition which are these giant companies and so for us we need to be really intentional about the things that we decide to do and then in turn the things that we decide not to do um and i think sometimes for someone like me who's so optimistic I I get carried away and think I can kind of, we as a company can leap tall buildings in a single bound. And that's, I think, where it's really helpful to have a co-founder like Andy, who is really thoughtful and rational and can think through some of the implications of of the decisions that we make and help us to sort of govern the types of things that we do do. And I, at the end of the day, we try to come to our team then with saying, listen, we'd rather do three things incredibly well than, you know, a hundred things not so well. And that's led us to be, you know, I think, pretty deliberate in the way that we built the brand. You know, we're, Harry is now five years old. We sell um, in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. only as opposed to all over the world, which is a choice we could have made. You know, the idea that we had around Harry's is that guys really value simplicity. And so rather than selling 12 different shave gels, which was a strategic choice we could have made, we sell one shave gel, but it's the best possible shave gel we can make. And one post-shave balm, one face wash. We just launched body wash. Um, but we haven't launched a million different men's grooming products because we care so much about the quality of each one of our products and about the idea that we want guys to be able to really understand what we make and how those products are different from each other. So even in uh, the early days of Harry's, what I think was remarkable is that you raised almost $100 million within, like, what, the first year? How did you pull that off? Yeah, so we raised a lot of money early on at Harry's. We didn't do that. Um, without any purpose. Like we had a very specific purpose to go raise $100 million. And we raised it to go buy a German razor blade manufacturer who we thought, think, is the best independent razor blade manufacturer in the world. This was like what, like a 90-year-old factory in Germany? Yeah, so it's a 90-year-old company. It's an amazing place. And um, the process that they go through to make quality blades is incredibly complicated. You know, the first time we wa- we went there, we were blown away by it. I think we walked in as naive entrepreneurs being like, well, we could probably just like make our own blade someday. And we walked out really, oh my gosh, there's a lot of special magic here. Um, and so we worked with them. They were our partners to start. We launched Harry's. And so we um, developed a closer and closer relationship with this factory and started to innovate together and realized at some point it was very strategic for both of us to, to unite forces and to combine the companies. So it was part of your pitch to investors that you were going to acquire 
a factory that would make these razor blades? That's what we raised $100 million for. And so we went to investors and we said, listen, you know, we have this incredible opportunity to create the only truly vertically integrated razor blade company in the world and that we can, you know, talk to customers and sell direct to them and understand their needs in a really deep way. Um, and then literally do everything from that to grind steel um, to make the blades that we know these customers want. And closing that loop is incredibly powerful. And we had amazing investors with you know tremendous vision for what the business could be and were really supportive of us. And they committed the capital for us to go buy the factory. We wouldn't have ever raised the money, though, if we hadn't actually done that. And how did it feel when you finally closed that deal on this old company and you've just been around for what like just several months yeah i mean it sounded crazy it felt crazy it was crazy the first thing that we did after we closed the deal was we went to germany for a while to spend time with the team and you know get to know them and obviously we knew them as partners but it's different once you're part of the same team and i remember andy and i you know our factory's in a really small town called eisfeld in germany it's a few thousand people that live in the town and we employ 500 people at the factory so probably one of the biggest employers now in the town and I think in the region. And, you know, we're standing on these wood crates overlooking the entire team. And our team in New York at the time was like 30 people. So we didn't really know what 400 people at the time looked or felt like as the team has since grown. And we're standing on these wood crates in the factory floor overlooking the whole team. And not very many people there speak English, so we're speaking English. And the managing director of the factory at the time was translating what we're saying into German. And it was like this surreal thing where we're speaking and he's speaking, we're speaking, and people are sort of nodding their heads and we're kind of nodding our heads. And, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, it did just feel like a crazy experience to all of a sudden have all these people as part of our team. I think there were two things that were important to us at the time, though. One is like we felt a ton of responsibility to these people. I mean, the average person who'd worked there had worked there for 13 years. And we were now responsible for them, their well-being, their families. You're and now so, like the main employer of an yeah. entire town. And so we had to do what's right by them and make this work. The second piece is we felt a, a real obligation and duty to do what we said we were going to do. And what we said we were going to do was to buy the factory and then invest in the people, invest there in Germany, build more capacity, modernize, innovate. And so you know we've made a real effort to do all those things. Yeah. And you built a customer base really organically um, through online outreach, like a, some really interesting online marketing. Um, and then you're also in retail stores now too, Target, yeah. Walmart. Yeah. How are you able to balance that where you could be in a brick and mortar location and not compromise the whole brand direct to consumer from online? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we as a brand have a duty to be customer centric first. And if you take that to its extreme, we have to be where customers want us to be. And in being where customers want us to be, we have to sort of understand, well, where do people actually want to buy these products? Now, we don't want our brand to show up in places where the brand experience is compromised. However, if there's a place where people are buying products and we can deliver an interesting brand experience, then I think we should be there. Yeah, so it's like... um I remember talking with yeah. Andy Dunn, uh, yeah. co-founder of Bonobos, and he had wanted to keep it independent a long time, but he decided to ultimately sell it to Walmart. Was that something that has ever crossed your mind? Yeah, I think probably two things there. One is we always built Harry's in a way that could enable it to be independent for a long, long time. 
I mean, we've, we've sort of set out with our team to build a brand that was going to be around for 100 years. I think that, you know, there could be a situation in the future, and it's not something that's on our radar that we're thinking about a lot today, where another company could partner with us to help us achieve that objective in a way that would be exciting for people in the world. And I think that's just structure. And so I think for us, um, it would be about finding a partner who could actually help us as a brand be more impactful in the world. And if that meant some sort of financial stake or ownership, great. That's something that we're obviously happy to do to align incentives. But the ambition of ours is not to like sell the business and stop trying to build the business. I think, if anything, we would want to continue to build Harry's for a long time. And on that note of expanding, in, in February, you raised uh, $112 million for this expansion into new categories of products. And to date, you've raised, what, like almost half a billion. Like, at what point do you want to be, like, just self-sufficient where you don't have to keep raising? We feel like we are – the Harry's business is self-sufficient today. Um, you know, we are profitable. So – that feels great for us. And so in some ways, we can continue to just build the Harry's brand in a way that was would be self-sufficient. For us, where raising incremental capital was interesting was the opportunity to, to invest that capital in building new brands, and CPG in particular. We look at a lot of so different CPGs, consumer packaged goods. So we look at a lot of different categories in consumer packaged goods, and they look a lot like shaving did five years ago. You know, giant brands that dominate the shelf, sort of reasonably low digital penetration, brands that are not bad brands. They've just been around for a long, long time. There are parents' brands, there are our grandparents' brands, pricing models that we don't think are sort of consumer first. And so we think there's opportunity to build new brands in some categories that are adjacent to Harry's, leveraging some of what we've learned at Harry's and at Warby Parker uh, to ideally try to create better consumer experiences there. So it's like the Warby Parker model worked with eyeglasses. You brought it to Harry's, worked with shaving. Now it's a matter of bringing it to a bunch of other products. Yeah, I think that's right. And other categories and other consumer problems. So do you envision yourself maybe competing with uh, like Unilever and Procter & Gamble, but on like a a more niche level? I think we already compete with those companies um, and not on a niche level. I think we compete with those companies in a way that is sort of significantly impacting the way that they think about their strategy and the categories that we participate in today. But like as opposed to saying just competing with Gillette and uh, Dollar Shave Club, Mm -hmm. it's like the entire holding company. Yeah. Yeah. The whole holding company. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about how much to expand, do you want to be a big company but not giant so that you could still have the giant companies be... Like they're not meeting your needs, we're more specialized. You know, I I think it's hard to sort of let that type of thing govern the ultimate outcome here. I think our general ambition is to reach as many people as possible and to have the most positive impact on their experiences. And so I'm hoping that in the future we can reach more people and make the experience around our products better. And if if we can't, if we're not making people's experiences better, then I don't think that they should switch and try us. Like they can continue to do what they're doing. And, re- and we recognize that we can't make the best possible products for everybody, but hopefully we can reach enough people and make their experience enough better where we start to have real impact on sort of lots of households. When you're looking at your entire career, what do you think the biggest challenge you've overcome has been? I think for me, 
the biggest challenge was probably a personal challenge around just a little bit of listening to my own gut and and what I like doing the most. After we had started Warby Parker, I went back to work in investing. And I had a really great setup. I loved the people I was working with. It was a really stable career path. I just had a son, so we were starting to build a family. And I thought a lot about, well, should I not stop doing this? Like, this is a good job. And it's and I, and I know what the future looks like. And But for me, I think at the time, I felt like um, there was an opportunity, an opportunity to do something that I genuinely loved, as opposed to something that I felt like I would be okay doing or reasonably happy doing. And it was always pulling at me. And I think at the end of the day, I just had to sort of follow my own intuition and and do what I felt like my emotionally I was compelled to do. And I think that made me a lot happier. I mean, I talked to my wife after I started working on Harry's and I left working in investing. She's like, you're a different person. Like you're just happier and more excited because you're doing something that you really want to do. And so for me, I learned that like this is what I love. Um, and that's a really personal thing for everybody. I wouldn't overly prescribe the entrepreneur path for every single person. I don't think it's probably right for everybody. It happened to be right for me. And, you know, there are people I work with investing who love investing and that's right for them. And there are people who like doing other things. And we have amazing creatives and designers. They love designing. That's right for them. And my job at Harry's, I feel like, is to try to find the opportunities that are right for people that I think that they're going to love and hopefully that they're going to love and put them in those positions because when they're happy and engaged, they're just so much more likely to be successful. And so I think that's probably what I learned about myself in that process. And that was a big emotional jump for me at that time. And related to that, how do you personally define success? I mean, I, I tend to define it through impact, like how much positive impact can I, can the company Harry's the brand have in the world around us. I think about impact in concentric circles. So for me, sort of the center of the circle is my family. Like, how can I make sure that I'm trying being a good dad and a good role model for my kids and making my kids know that I love them and that I'm there for them and, and hopefully always be there for my family? Then it's, I think, our friends. Then I think, you know, it's the people that I get to work with at Harry's and ensuring that they're having a great experience working with us, then it's our customers, and then it's like the community more broadly, and then sort of how businesses are being built even more broadly. So I think there's a lots of different layers of impact. And I think try to positively influence all of them. And it's probably where I struggle most in my life is like where do you dial in these different things because I, I tend to sort of like ideas and like being around people. And so um, sometimes I can kind of get carried out away in one direction or another and have to kind of come back to that that core equation. It's what learning matters. how to find that balance. Yeah. And looking at all of it, is there some advice that you would give to someone who wants to have a career like yours? I think the first piece of advice I would give is you just got to love it. Like starting a company is all consuming. And so you have to be so deeply passionate about that endeavor and that idea that you literally just can't sleep at night, that you let it almost be all-consuming and it's good. And if it's not that way, if it feels like a struggle, it's probably just not the right thing for you. And find an idea that does make you feel that way. And I genuinely felt that way about Harry's and Morby Parker. It was just so exciting for me to get to try to build businesses and brands that you know helped 
solve the needs that I felt and that I felt like a lot of other people felt. You had worked yourself to fainting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I was so excited um, about doing it. I think I personally am always excited about ideas. I'm just generally optimistic, I think. Um, which, if you ask my wife, I think sometimes drives her crazy because there'll be like 10 things that would have to go right for something to happen. And I'll be like, just convinced that all those things are going to go right to happen. It's like, they're definitely not going to be that way. That's that's the just the approach you have to have if you're going to be an entrepreneur. So. Yeah, I think so. And so, um, and I also like a bit of ambiguity. I don't mind kind of like jumping into something without having everything figured out. I think the second piece, which probably correlates to work-life balance is I think sometimes when you get into this, it is so deeply all-consuming that you can kind of push off some other parts of life. And, you know, I remember early on at Harry's, it's like, well, if I just get Harry's to this point in a year, then like things will change. And then two years and three years. And then at some point, you know, maybe who knows, like it just doesn't, it's, it's sort of a consistently all-consuming process. And so I think what I've had to learn in the last few years is how do I then create the balance in my life to enable this job to be sustainable for me? And when you have your own company, like you realize that the work never stops. There's always more you can do. There's always more you can do to push the company forward. There's always more that you can do to be more responsive to the team, et cetera. And so what I've had to now do is sort of schedule actually personal time because work just could fill every second. So I started to schedule personal time and realize that that's really important, both for my own psyche and sort of an ability to sort of do this in the long term and for my family and ensuring that I can spend a lot of time with my kids because it's something that I want to do for the next 20 years. And in 20 years, my kids are going to be grown up. And so I need then to be able to have built in the time where I feel like I can hopefully be a, a good dad to them as I go through the journey. Yeah. The, the challenges weren't going to change you how to change yourself. Completely. Thank you so much, Jeff. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to This Is Success from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating and review. Both really help new people find the show. Before you go, we've got one more inside fact about Jeff Rader to share. Our team really likes to sing karaoke and... I think Andy and I were like, we like karaoke. And we actually had a bunch of people who were in bands and like, or had real musical talent. And there are sort of some favorite karaoke songs that, you know, we started everyone sings. And so, what's your um, go to? So, at, for at, in the Harry's context, I really like Lean on Me because everyone gets kind of gets together and, you know, we can just share, share our love for each other. So, um, that's something that I think has become a fun part of our team and culture and i think a great opportunity for people to like kind of let their hair down and be a little bit vulnerable around each other and have a great time together next week on the show we have world-renowned bridal gown designer panina tournay tune in to hear her try to poach me from business insider whenever i see someone that could be helpful to my business the first thing i do is offer them a job by the way would you like to work for me (laughs) This is Success is a production of Insider Audio.